Brilliant. If uh, you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to the book of Hebrews. Um, it's already been mentioned once this morning by Maggie, which is where we're going to be spending some time today. Um, looks like I need to look it up as well. Um, okay, book of Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 4 today. This is the second week in our, our new series, a series that we've called Just One Name. And this, uh, this series really came out of, or it was uh, kind of birthed out of, um, uh, one evening back in August, I was in a tent uh, surrounded by about 6,000, say a tent, it was a big top, surrounded by 6,000, 7,000 other people at the New Day youth event. And we were singing this song, and it's a song that we've been playing at the start of the meetings uh, over the last couple of weeks. And it's a song called Just One Name, and it's based on, really, it's taken a, a, a hymn, uh, a much older hymn, uh, which I think is called How Sweet the Name. People might know it, How Sweet the Name. And what they've done, the team have kind of put it to their own melody and they've, bought, uh, they've put in a chorus as well. And the chorus says this, it says, and this is speaking about Jesus, it says, just one name I adore, just one name awakes my soul, just one name above them all, Jesus. And this song is a song, it makes, uh, it makes a lot of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is. It's all about the reasons why we have to praise him and the reasons why we have to give thanks for him. And this song just really stuck with me. And it's saying about just one name because you know what, there's something about the name of Jesus which is unlike any other name. It's a name unlike any other. In, uh, when Paul was writing to the Philippians, he said that therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has the name that is above every other name. There's something different about the name of Jesus, And what we want to do uh, and what we're doing through this series is actually uh, understanding that we, we can say the name of Jesus and we sing the name of Jesus and we talk about Jesus, but we really need to understand who he is. Because when we say his name, uh, he's, he, we need to understand who he is because he is um, just in terms of his character and in terms of his nature it is so rich and so varied. We need a full understanding of who he is to really understand why there is such power in his name. And there was a, a, it was two lines, I think, in this song, in one of, the, one of the verses, that really got my attention that night, back in August. And as soon as we were singing it, I was like, we need to do a series on this, because it's going to do us good to think about who Jesus is. And the words that we were singing were these. It said, Jesus, my shepherd, saviour, friend, O prophet, priest, and king. And I just thought, we need to spend some time unpacking that, and really understanding what that means. What does it mean for Jesus to be shepherd, saviour, friend, prophet, priest and king? So we're going to be looking at that over these six weeks. Mike started last week and we've kind of changed the order up. So different to the order that it comes in the song. So we're actually going to start with prophet, priest and king. Then move on to shepherd, friend, saviour. I think if that's the, the right way of doing it. I'm looking at the people who are speaking. So making sure I've got the right order on that. But we're starting with prophet, priest and king because... When we look at the Old Testament, so in the Old Testament we see kind of the period of history, the story of God's people before Jesus arrives. And in the Old Testament, prophet, priest and king, these three are really, they're in the center stage of the story of God rescuing his people Israel. They have specific roles, they have specific purposes, they have specific 
function in terms of the relationship that God had with his people and how that was worked out. So we need to understand, what, really we need to understand who the prophets, priests and kings were, what their function was, what their purpose was, to understand the implications of what it means for Jesus to be these three. For Jesus to be prophet, to be priest and to be king. As I say, Mike kicked off last week and he was looking at prophet Jesus as prophet, and really his overriding thing that came through was this, was yes, Jesus was a prophet, but he was so much more. He was a prophet, but he kind of went beyond where the other prophets could go, in that he actually fulfilled the prophecies themselves. And when people were asking for signs, actually Jesus was saying, do you know what, the only sign that you need is my death and my resurrection. That's the sign that you need to know who I am. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus as priest. Book of Hebrews, the reason why we're in Hebrews, uh, if you've read it at all, you'll know it's got a lot to say about Jesus as priest, probably more than anywhere else. Uh, If I tried to cover everything this morning that Hebrews said about priests, we'd be here for a long time. Uh, So just encourage you, if you want to know more about what it is for Jesus as priest, then spend some time in Hebrews. It's really rich. And, and really digs into what that means. But we're going to be reading some verses together today. And we're going to be starting from chapter 4 and verse 14. It says this. It says that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then I'm going to jump across to chapter 10. From verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is thankful. So the writer of Hebrews, he was writing into into a Jewish context. So the people who were reading the letter, the people who were hearing the letter, when he's talking about priests and the priesthood, the people would have understood. It's something they would have been familiar with. So they would have been able to to kind of grasp uh, what the writer was getting at when he's saying, look, actually, Jesus is our great high priest. 
But it might, the, the whole thing of the priesthood and the need for the priesthood we, might not be something that we're as familiar with. So that's got to be our starting place today. We need to look at who the priesthood was, what the priesthood was for, what its function was, uh, because if we need to look at that first in order then to understand how it is that Jesus could be our great high priest and to understand the implications of that. So why was the priesthood needed? There's a couple of places for us to start, I think. And the first is this. We need to understand God's holiness. Our God is a holy God. When we say that, what we mean is that, I read this somewhere, I thought it was great. He's in a class absolutely by himself. He is so other to anyone or anything else. He's above all things. Paul writes to Timothy, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light. What a picture. That's a picture of his holiness. He's just so holy that actually we can't even approach him. We can't approach him because he is above all things. And in 1 John 1.5, we were just doing a series, weren't we, through 1 John. And right at the beginning of the series, we looked at these verses that said that God is light and in him no darkness is found. There's no darkness There's no sin. There's no error. He's perfect. He's holy. He's completely set apart. So we need to understand that. And then we also need to understand people's sinfulness. People's sinfulness, the fact that God is so other. God is so set apart. In him there is no darkness. uh, No darkness is found. But yet we live lives where actually we live lives in rebellion to the way that God would want us to live. And we don't live perfect lives. And we do things that would cause him offence. We do things that are disobedient to the way that he would call us to be. We set our hearts and we worship things other than him. And the thing that sin does is that it creates a barrier between God and his people. So we've got a holy God, but we've got a sinful people. There's a barrier there. And when when we say, well, it creates a barrier, sometimes it can kind of sanitise our understanding of what it is. It sounds it creates a barrier, there's just something in between God and man, but again, Paul writing in Romans, he says this, he says, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is how God feels about sin. For the wrath of God is revealed against those things. We need saving from God's wrath. And the scriptures are clear. They say actually the wages of sin, what sin produces within us, or what sin produces, is death. It's that eternal, there's going to be that eternal separation from God because he is so holy. Because in him no sin is found. So can you see there's a big problem here? The problem is not God. God is holy. The problem is, is that we're sinful. And God's way of solving the problem is the priesthood. That was God's solution. And the priests, they acted on behalf of the people in relation to God. That's what we kind of understand what the priests did. They acted on behalf of the people in relation to God. They were sort of a go-between between God and his people and between the people and God. Now for, for Israel... Their their worship really revolved around, firstly, when when Moses established the tabernacle, and then later on in Jerusalem, 
in the temple. That's where everything to do with their worship was, was centred around. And even the way that the tabernacle and then the temple were, were constructed and laid out tells us an awful lot about this relationship between God and his people and the need for, for that go-between for the priests. You see, the way that, the, the, that it was set up was that you would have, on the outside you would have like the court, the courtyard, it's where the sacrifices would take place. And all people could go in there. People could go in there. They were able to, to be in there and, and to mingle around and, and able to, 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 to be around. And then within that, you had a smaller part of that, which was called the holy place. And that was where only the priests could go. Okay, so um, kind of everyone else in the population, they wouldn't be able to go in there, but the priests could go into the holy place. And then within there was the Holy of Holies. And it was in the Holy of Holies that the presence of God was. God was among his people. God chose to dwell among his people. And it was in this place, in the Holy of Holies. And there was only one person who could go in there. One high priest could go into the presence of God. And even then, only he could go in just once a year. Anyone else entering the presence of God would die because of his holiness, because he dwells in unapproachable light. So we've got, um, so we, we've got God dwelling with his people, but we've kind of got this system in place in terms of the way that the temple was laid out. We've got the court separated from the holy place by, we're told it's separated by a curtain. And then the holy place is separated from the holy of holies by another curtain. I wonder what kind of image that brings up in your mind when we're talking about a curtain dividing these spaces. Our curtains in our house, in some of our bedrooms, are useless because our children wake up as soon as the sun rises. Just flimsy little material that the light kind of shines through. Maybe that's your understanding of what... When we're talking about a curtain, you might think about the curtains that you've got in your house. <coughs> or maybe... Have you ever seen... I don't know whether they still sell them or not. Have you ever seen in like shops and... And restaurants. They used to have these in doorways. You used to have like those ribbon strings of rib bits of ribbon or, or beads that would uh, come down. So it would create a barrier, but people were still able to pass through and kind of come and go. Maybe that's kind of what our understanding is when we talk about the curtain in the temple. We couldn't be more wrong if that was our understanding. You see, the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, it separated the presence of God from the people, was six, over 60 foot high and three inches thick. That's like no curtain I've ever heard of before. 60 foot high and three inches thick. We'll come back to this later on. So Israel had the presence of God with them, but at the same time, because of God's holiness, they were protected. They had to be protected from the presence of God, and it was this system that they had in place. The courts, the holy, of, uh, the holy place, and the holy of holies divided by curtains. They could not enter into God's presence, apart from the high priest, once a year. And Hebrews, the, the verses that we've just been reading, actually tells us about the high who the high priests were. In chapter 5, the start of chapter 5, it tells us this. It says that the high priests were chosen from among the people, appointed to act on behalf of the people before God. So can we see, they're, they're the representatives of the people before God. That go-between, as I mentioned a moment ago. And the priests functioned in a few ways. The first thing was that they would represent 
the people to God. They would go in on their behalf. Another thing that they would do is that they would offer prayers on behalf of the people. That was a big part of what the priests did. Kind of interceding for the people before God. So they would come and they would pray to God for the people. And the other thing that they would do is that they would offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. I mentioned a couple of times that it was the high priest that went into the Holy of Holies once a year. And it was once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, animals were sacrificed and the high priest would take the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed and take it into the Holy of Holies and offer it to God. Now this word atonement, what atonement means really, it's about reconciliation. It's about relationship between God and people being restored. And when this sacrifice is made and when this offering is made, it covers the sins of the people. That's what it, that's what it did. That's why the priests did it. They were covering the sins. They were covering the offences of the people. And so the Day of Atonement was a day of celebration. They were saying, listen, people of God, your sins have been forgiven. A day of great celebration. And this was one of such an important function that the high priests uh, took on and carried out on behalf of the people. We're also told this. We're told that they were not perfect. They had weaknesses. They were like the people that they served. But, because they were not perfect, because they had weaknesses, it enabled them to sympathise with those they represented. It says in those verses, it says that they are able to deal gently with those that they represent because they understand what it is to be a human. They understand what it is to wrestle with sin. They understand what it is to serve a holy God but still have weakness. And because they have weaknesses and because they weren't perfect, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins as well as offering a sacrifice for everyone else's sins. They were in the same state, they were in the same position as everyone else. And then these verses also tell us that they were called by God. They were men that had been appointed by God, chosen by him to serve in this function. So that's who the high priests were. That is what they did. So when Jesus is called the great high priest, which is what the writer of Hebrews said, that's where we start off. We have a great high priest. So when Jesus is called a great high priest, we look at the priesthood and what we'll see is that Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of the high priest perfectly. In a way that they weren't able to. Chapter 5, verse 5. We're told this, that Jesus didn't exalt himself to be made high priest. It's not a decision that he made that he thought, there's a problem here, I'm just going to step in and I'm going to sort it out. You know, I was mentioning earlier, I was speaking about the wrath of God in terms of just um, God's, in, in terms of how God feels about sin and how God relates to sin. Uh, and, and we can maybe have an idea, whether we have this or maybe it's an idea that, that might be out uh, outside the church and in the world where they just think of God as an, just angry. God is just angry with us. God's, we, we sin and we get things wrong and God is just angry with us. And we can think we've got this angry God and yet Jesus loves us. So Jesus decided to come and to sort the problem out. But actually we're told that Jesus didn't exalt himself to be high priest, but he's been appointed, rather he's been sent by God 
Yes, there is a, a side to God where there is wrath against sin. But he loves us. He loves us to the extent that he appointed his own son to come and serve as high priest on our behalf. So we've seen already that God appointed and called the high priests. But this calling is different to the one that Jesus had. And we're told why. Two reasons. God appointed Jesus, but he also said, firstly, he said, you are my son. Jesus isn't just another man as the other high priests would have been. It's not just that another human has been appointed to fill that role of priest. God says of Jesus, he says, I'm appointing you to be the high priest. You are my son. God himself has come to serve. And the second reason why it's different from the calling of the other high priests is that God says, and you are priest forever. You are my son, you are priest forever. In the old priesthood, in the way that things would have been, the high priests would die, someone else would be called up to fulfill the function, and it would just keep going and going. That's the way it would work. But actually with Jesus we see, actually there's not going to be another high priest after him. There's not going to be another need for a high priest after him. He is going to be high priest forever. John Piper says this. He says that the, the, um, the point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ, God's son, has not just come to fit, fit into the earthly system of priestly ministry as the best and final human priest, but he has come to fulfill and put an end to that system. And orient all our attention on himself ministering for us in heaven. The Old Testament tabernacle and priests and sacrifices were shadows. And now the reality has come and the shadows pass away. That's what Jesus does. The priests and the priesthood and the systems of sacrifice were shadows of Jesus coming to be priest forever. So the call is different. But Jesus is also different to these other priests in other ways. It said that the priests could sympathise with the people. They were able to sympathise with them because they had weaknesses themselves. But because of that, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But in chapter 4, verse 15, it says that we do not have a high, sorry, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then in 5 verse 8 it says that although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He can meet us in our weaknesses. Isn't that such a comfort to know? That he empathizes with us. He sympathizes, so he sympathizes with us. And the reason he can do that is because he himself has been tempted in every way. Not only that, he learned obedience through his suffering. So there was this process of obedience. Matt Hosier says this, which I found quite helpful. He says, in what way did Christ need to learn obedience? It would be quite a hard thing for us to get our head around, to say that Jesus had to learn what it was to be obedient. So in what way did Christ need to learn obedience? And he goes on to say that his learning was not about grasping something new, but rather his obedience was constantly challenged through his suffering. In order to qualify for something, it's necessary to first submit to it. And Jesus was qualified as high priest 
out of his suffering, out of his obedience, and out of his endurance. You see, Jesus knew what it was to suffer. He's not distant and far off, looking at us as we, in our suffering and looking at us in our weaknesses and, and being disconnected from that. Actually, he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to endure. He knows what it is to be obedient. He's able to sympathise with our suffering. So in a, in a way that the, the priests and the high priests were able to do that, and Jesus is able to do that, but Jesus is completely different from them in that while he was tempted, he did not sin. He was totally obedient. You see, where the high priests, they had to make a sacrifice for themselves as well as for the people, Jesus did not need to make a sacrifice for himself. He didn't need to. There was no reason to because there was no sin to be covered. He didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself. But he was able to offer a sacrifice for the people. Under the old covenant, under under the old ways of doing things, sacrifice required two things. The first thing it required was an animal to be sacrificed, and the second thing it required was a priest in order to make the offering. So we needed these two things. But Jesus was uniquely placed because he, unlike the other high priests, was able to be both the priest and the sacrifice. We see that. Because he was without sin, he was able to serve as priest but also as the sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 9. The verses we read, it says that being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. No other high priest could say that. The thought of that, I'm sure, would never even have entered into the head of any of the other guys who had served as high priest. None of them would have been able to say, I'm able to come in and I will serve as priest and I'll be able to serve as sacrifice. They wouldn't have even entertained that thought because they knew it was not true. And yet Jesus is able to do both. And we see this sacrifice that Jesus made when we look to the cross and when we look at the crucifixion where Jesus was murdered, where he was hung on a tree, where his body was broken and his blood was poured out. And as his blood was poured out as an offering that covered our sins, just as the blood of the sacrifice under the old covenant would have covered the sins of the people, Jesus' blood serves in the same way. It covers the sins of the people. We were singing the song before last. We were singing, now my debt is paid. It is paid in full. That is what Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes for us and it's not like the day of atonement where the sins were covered but next year you would have to go through the same thing again Jesus sacrifice brings reconciliation between people and God it's that not just that we're saved from the wrath of God but we're saved into a relationship with God the sacrifice was once For all, never to be repeated. Which is why the writer of Hebrews is able to say, Jesus is high priest forever. It's been done. No more sacrifices have to be made. He's done it. His sacrifice is the one that solves the problem that we had. That problem of of we've got a holy God and we've got a sinful people. It's Jesus' sacrifice. It's Jesus' blood that solves that problem. And draws us into relationship with God. Let's go back to the curtain that we spoke about earlier, that curtain that had that separation between the presence of God and the people. See, in Matthew 27, 
verse 50 to 51, we find Jesus on the cross. And it says this, it says that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. For over 1400 years, the people of God were separated from the presence of God by that curtain. It was for their own good. That same curtain that the high priest would go through once a year to bring an offering. This curtain, remember, not a flimsy piece of cloth, but a curtain that was 60 foot high and three inches thick. This curtain, at the time where Jesus offers up his life for us, this curtain is torn in two. So the barrier that prevented you from approaching God has been destroyed forever. Jesus has made a way for us to enter into the presence of God in a way that the people of God were not able to before. Aren't you grateful that you live this side of Jesus' arrival? Because we get to experience something that the people then never got to. And it's not just that we, with the curtain being torn in two, it's not just that we have a way to enter in, but actually God's presence is now breaking out. I think we were, someone spoke to me today, I don't know if it's been something that was shared, but actually God, by his spirit, he lives within us. We have the presence of God within us. So actually, we now take the presence of God where we go. That's a complete reversal of the way that it was before. It's not just that we get to go into the presence of God, but the presence of God is now breaking out and spreading across the world. So Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice for sin, and he also brings us before God continually. Verse 4, verse 14 says that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus has passed through the heavens. It's not just that he's physically passed through the curtain, but he's He's into the presence of God in heaven. Which is why the writer of Hebrews can say in 4.16, draw near to the throne of grace. In 10.19, he says, enter the holy places. In 10.22, he says, draw near with a true heart. There is invitation to draw into the presence of God, to come into those holy places, because Jesus has gone before us, again, not just beyond the curtain, but into the presence of God in heaven. He brings us before God continually. And in those verses I just read, the writer, he's not writing, they're not writing for the high priests. They're not writing for the priests, but for all. They say, let us draw near, since we enter. This isn't just for the high priests to enter into the presence of God anymore. This is for everyone. There's an invitation. There's a welcome to come and enter into the presence of God. So Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice for sin. He brings us before God continually. And just as the priests would pray for the people, Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is always interceding for us. Maggie shared that just before I came on. Jesus as our high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, continually making intercession for us. Isn't that comforting? This high priest, this Jesus, who sacrificed himself for you in order that you could come into relationship with God, at this, right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. 
When you're sleeping, Jesus is making intercession for you. When you're in a place where you feel like, I can't pray, Jesus is making intercession for you. When you don't have the words, Jesus is making intercession for you. Because he's your great high priest. I want to just finish by thinking. And so this is what I picked up on enough the other night. And this is what I want us just to focus on. In 4.16. It says that let us then enter with confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Chapter 10. Verse 19. Since we have confidence... To enter the holy places. 10.22. Let us. Um, where are we? Let us draw near. With a true heart. In full assurance of faith. 10.23. Let us hold. Um, let us. Let us hold fast. There's this whole thing that keeps coming through. That really struck me. That speaks about confidence. And assurance that we can have. And the reason this is so remarkable, and the reason why this should stop us in our tracks, is because we shouldn't be able to draw near the throne at all. We shouldn't be able to do that. That's why you had to have this priesthood and this system in the first place, because we couldn't enter near the throne at all, let alone enter with any sort of confidence... Imagine how the high priest must have felt on that day when he was going in to the presence of God. I think he would have been pretty nervous. Knowing what it was to enter into the presence of God. Yet we can do so with confidence. I think sometimes we can become familiar with things to the, in ways that can be unhelpful. Because we lose something of the wonder. Or something of the, the impact of what that means. The reality of what that means. But we are not to, it's not that we now enter into the presence of God or come before God with trepidation or fear, but with confidence. Think about what it would have been like in the Old Testament. What would it have been like for you if you were living at that time? You've got the presence of God. He's living with you among your people, but you can't enter in. You wouldn't even dare to try. You can't have a little sneak, little peek around the, around the curtain and see what's going on in there. No. You wouldn't have thought of doing it. You wouldn't even dream of doing it. But today, we can draw near to God's throne. We can enter into the holy places with confidence. We can do it with full assurance. So why can we have confidence? It's important for us to realise that the reason we can enter into God's presence, it's not because God has changed. We can't think that. We can't think that somehow God's less holy than he was, which is why we've been allowed into his presence or why we can enter in. It's not true. He's still as holy as, as he's ever been. He's as holy as he ever will be. So if the thing that's changed is not God, uh, then it's something, the change has happened, something has happened for us. But our confidence is not in ourselves. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's where our confidence comes from. That's where our confidence lies. By the blood of Jesus. By the way that he opened up.
We have confidence because as we enter into God's presence, we do so as those whose hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's what, it's what Jesus has done for us. His blood has covered our sins once and for all. That's where our confidence lies. Hate to burst your bubble. It's nothing about you. It's not that you're somehow special enough or charismatic enough or gifted enough or impressive enough to be able to come into God's presence. It's because of the work that Jesus has done for you. All of us, we're all different. By God's grace, we're all different. But yet it's Jesus' blood that covers all of us. Which means that all of us can enter into God's presence with confidence and full assurance of faith. I hope you feel encouraged. Preparing for this today has done me such good. I thought I understood about the old ways that things were done and what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. But when you really get into it, the picture is far more wonderful than I had even understood it before. It's not just that we have a way. That would be enough. But actually we can enter in with confidence. We can enter in with boldness. doesn't matter if we're having a good day. doesn't matter if we're having a bad day. It doesn't matter if we feel like we're flying in our relationship with God or if we're really struggling in our relationship with God. Our confidence remains because our confidence is not in us. It's in our great high priest, Jesus. It's because his blood covers us. We're going to come and we're going to share communion because I think that is just such an appropriate response for us.